0: All right here we go, y'all. Uh, coming to the, we are now in the uh, response episodes of this series on wokeness. Uh, in episodes one, two, and three, um, tried to explain the big idea of the social justice, the modern social justice movement, or what I've started to call the social justice theory movement. That term coming from um, a great book, "Cynical Theories" by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. Um, Episodes one, two, and three, try to summarize what is this all about. Uh, episode four, try to talk about what does it mean to be an anti-racist um, or what should you be doing? What is the movement calling you to do? What are the action steps? Um, and that's really summarized and defined by uh, what is called anti being an anti-racist. Let's start responding. Um, I'm going to start giving my more unfiltered responses um, to these ideas. Uh, that that I've tried to lay out and tried to make sense of um, on in this series. So what we're going to do on this episode, uh, I'm going to talk about just responding to these episodes as a Christian or not. Are these ideas reasonable and or substantiated? Um, how should we think through the reasoning behind all of these ideas? The next episode I'm going to do is going to be how do we think about these things and respond to them as Christians? So from a much more uh, biblical standpoint. So let's start with, uh, are these ideas reasonable? Um, how do we respond to the reasoning and the substance, substantiation of these ideas and, and ultimately of this uh, worldview? Here's how I'm going to uh, put this together under four different headings. Here's, here's how I'm going to uh, respond uh, this worldview is largely substantiated by number one, assumptions, number two, reinterpretation, number three, faulty logic, and it functions with contradictions. Okay, so first, this worldview merely assumes racism in many regards, um, assumes racism in order to substanti- substantiate the idea that it is. Uh, everywhere. So Robin DiAngelo in her book, White Fragility. And again, if you're just tuning in, um, I would highly encourage you to pause this episode and go listen to um, the first episodes in this whole series, because a lot of it is built on responding to some of the most popular books out there. One being by Robin DiAngelo called White Fragility. Uh, She says that in her book, in the beginning, she says she will not, quote, attempt to prove that racism exists, end quote. A book entirely built on the premise that racism exists and is everywhere and in everything. She says she will not attempt in the book to even prove that premise. It all, the whole book rests on that and it's an assumption that the book makes. This, in many ways, to kind of, I'm going to book in this whole episode with this illustration or this picture. It's like holding up a cup to show how great of a cup it is. Um, but refusing to ever pour water into it to prove that it actually holds water. So it's like someone holding up a cup, you see it riddled with holes, and you go, maybe my eyes are playing tricks on me, maybe it doesn't have holes in it, maybe it holds water just fine. Uh, If you could just pour a little bit of water in the cup, and I'll see if it holds water. Um, What Robin DiAngelo does there saying, I'm not going to attempt to prove racism exists, she said, I'm not going to pour water in this cup. But I am going to talk about... The structure of the cup and what it does and what it is, but I'm never going to actually show or try to show that it holds uh, water. And, and really this worldview and social justice theory goes further, at least on the ground, to really condemn the very request to pour water in the cup. Like if, you, if you're saying pour, pour water in the cup just to kind of prove that the cup is real, to prove that the cup works, um, that idea in and of itself in many ways is just condemned. Um, you shouldn't even ask for that kind of substantiation. Jamar Tisby similarly writes that um, that he will not provide a, quote, smoking gun, explicit evidence that connects the American church with overt cooperation with racism, end quote. So his whole book, uh, Color of Compromise, is, how the, is all about how the church and Christians have uh, compromised with racism, have been complicit in racism, but says he 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 he's not going to at least show in his book what the the smoking gun is or the explicit evidence of that is. Um, maybe this is why racism is now called uh, all over the place. Quote invisible. Um, if you're looking for the kind of overt substantiation that I think should be demanded. For such a revolutionary worldview as the worldview of social justice theory, the modern social justice mu- uh, movement, you will not find it in these popular books. They are explicitly, they explicitly say they're not even trying to, to prove it. Um, now, you have to remember that um, and I just started reading uh, a book, I think it's called Critical, um, An Introduction to Critical Race Theory by Richard Delgado. I'm going to do a later episode probably Uh, Reviewing uh, that book in similar fashion as I've done here, Uh, one thing you have to remember is that so much of what this popular movement is founded on comes from um, higher academia. It comes from the academy, it comes from the ivory tower. Okay, and so James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and Cynical Theories write about the scholarship behind these ideas. And they say, quote, as they are, the ideas are demonstrably bad and ethically incoherent and cannot withstand rigorous scrutiny without imploding and disappearing in a puff of contradictions, end quote. Now, that's an aggressive quote I just read. Uh, That comes from their book, Cynical Theories, that dives into the scholarship behind um, a lot of this modern movement. So they get into critical race theory, they get into feminist theory, they get into a ton of these different theories um, that come from the academy and the ivory tower that many times popular culture never hears about or knows about. And they say when you look into them, they can't withstand rigorous scrutiny, they just implode. In other words, they're like a cup that right when you pour water in just starts to leak everywhere. So, how does this worldview, this movement, substantiate itself? If it doesn't have the smoking gun, the explicit evidence, um, if, uh, if it says, well, what, really what we're talking about is invisible, you can't really see it, uh, how do they substantiate it? One of the primary ways that they substanti- substantiate the idea that present racism is everywhere is by identifying the concrete, obvious, visible examples of it in history, And so there's a fundamental assumption always at work in this. I see this in the literature. I hear it in conversations. There's this fundamental assumption that historic racism has, quote, this is Lindsay and Pluckrose in their words, has, quote, produced an indelible imprint upon how people discuss and view issues today, end quote. So history has imprinted the present. Uh, Robin DiAngelo, and I don't have this in my notes, but, I am c- clearly remember an example in White Fragility, uh, her talking about how I think in one of her racial uh, trainings, trainings on race and racism and race relations, um, I think talking about a white woman maybe crying, and she related that to in the past when, um, when maybe in the days of slavery in America, how maybe a white woman would would cry because she would accuse a a black man or a black woman of of doing something uh, inappropriate to her or something like that, and so she said that this these present tears triggered that whole history, um for for I believe uh, the black people around that woman presently, so there was this assumption that that history produced this imprint. I mean it. It literally has traveled to the present uh, in this mysterious in this mysterious way, and so that's why a lot of times when when people talk about present racism, they will use examples from the 1800s, and then there's this kind of um, jump that will happen that that readers are left to to make the connection that because this happened in 1800s or or much closer to our time, even the 1950s that it's certainly still going on today. Um, this is why progress is not really ever affirmed or considered uh, in any significant way and and oftentimes not considered progress at all because racism is said to have never, it, it's never gone away. It's just adapted and evolved and changed and it just looks different. Principally, it's it's very invisible. It's very deceitful. So progress is a lot of times just totally glossed over. Um where, especially of these books, readers are just left to assume that the obvious racism detailed in America's history is still present, even if it's just, quote, invisible. Um, Now, here's the problem. Precisely how past racism has stamped itself on the present to be active and alive in current rules, laws, policies, procedures, and the like is not very clear. How that jump is made, how that imprint has happened, is it's just not clear. Again, I've said it uh, many times that the, it's just not clear what the rules, the unwritten rules, the systems, the policies, the processes that are all racist are. Um, those things are left very vague, okay? So it's, it, it'll be said that the way we do business is still racist, but precisely how, precisely what needs to change is often completely left up to the imagination, So Lindsay, uh, again, and Pluckrose write, quote, this is what makes theory seductive or populism or Marxism or any other form of utopianism that looks good on paper and is ruinous in practice. Uh, We're just left to believe that there's this coming utopia. It will be brought about through a revolution. But we're not there yet. We haven't really made progress yet, and we need a, a significant upheaval to occur, a significant revolution to occur, and then we'll enter in to kind of more of this, uh, this some kind of utopia. Um, and so there, Lindsay and Plucker say, looks good on paper, but in practice, when it's put into actual practice, becomes ruinous. Now, here is the undeniable reality. American society and culture has progressed out of significant racism one easy example is to consider all of the laws that in history we can see visibly and concretely were racist and evil and unethical and immoral and oppressive those laws have changed those laws have changed. What once were completely approved and acceptable practices um, have changed, have changed, so that people can be treated on a far more equal basis throughout our country, throughout American society, regardless of skin color. You, that progress cannot be um, ignored. It cannot be glossed over. Um And it is impossible, reasonably to, uh, to chalk it up to somehow more deceptive racism or something like that. Uh, this is one of the, the great ironies of this whole movement is that it seems to evade and avoid all positives such as progress. Ironically, for a movement that is set on eradicating racism in society, it fails to acknowledge the ways American society has moved significantly towards that end. Um, Ironically, for a movement set on eradicating racialization and racism, it seems to constantly and purposefully draw dividing lines between man-made racial categories and constantly and purposefully declare that things are just as bad uh, as, as ever. So this modern social justice movement or social justice theory makes a ton of assumptions right out the gate, right from the get-go. Second, this worldview reinterprets nearly everything as racist, including events and discourses that have no apparent connection to racism, in order to substantiate the idea that it is everywhere. What what I have found in reading and in listening is that most of life is reinterpreted in the most cynical way possible uh, with this worldview. One of the most stunning examples uh, is in White Fragility. Robin DiAngelo talks about Jackie Robinson, and she states very matter-of-factly how we were taught that Jackie Robinson was the first uh, uh, major league professional um, black baseball player because he was just the first one who was skilled enough to play professional baseball. She says, that's how we were taught about Jackie Robinson. And we were taught that way because we were taught that story uh, in a way to avoid it being about race and racism. So we weren't taught that that Jackie Robinson was the first black baseball player because of all of the, the, the racial complexities and racism of the time. No, we were taught, according to Robin DiAngelo, that he was just the first good one. Now, this is stunning because, well, let me just ask... Were you taught that? I, I sure wasn't. Even growing up in a predominantly white community, predominantly white school, from the get-go, I was taught, the books teach, the movies show, that uh, the story of Jackie Robinson has everything to do with race and racism. Um, it's stunning. It's perplexing how that story in D'Angelo's book is reinterpreted. That whole reality of teaching the, the story of Jackie Robinson is is said to, to, to be an example of how we like to avoid race and racism, and we avoid talking about it, and so we don't bring it up when we talk about Jackie Robinson. Couldn't it be further from the truth, at least in my experience and the experience of, of everyone I've talked to about that, or... Or ask another example of, of reinterpretation uh, that I recently heard in a couple sermons by Pastor Matt Chandler um, I don't bring him up or his sermons you know just to take pot shots or something like that uh, but I but he is a very uh, popular influential voice uh, in this movement in, in evangelicalism uh, he has a couple he probably has many sermons but uh, two popular ones a house divided cannot stand. Uh, is a sermon of his, and then Racial Harmony. And in these sermons, to kind of summarize, he talks about how in his growing up, his education, he really didn't learn much about uh, non-white people. Uh, He learned primarily about white people. Um, He learned primarily about the accomplishments of white people um, and that sort of thing. And so he, and, and he brings up like in particular Africa and other places where he, he talks about, I just, I, I really didn't learn about many of the accomplishments of, of non-white people in history. Um, and, and this was an example of how, of, of just, um, you know, perhaps uh, white supremacy or, or white privilege or, or just, just kind of general racism, uh, in in America and in his education, uh, now in he, he brings up, well, what about the pyramids? You know, because you might even say, well, well, I've I've learned about great accomplishments from non-white people in other places other than America, just the pyramids being one example. Um, and Pastor Matt Chandler responds very quickly, kind of in this hypothetical questioning scenario. Uh, that yes, we were we were taught about the pyramids, but we're taught that North Africa is very is not the same as the rest of Africa. Now I don't exactly know what he's talking about um, there, but but this raises so many questions. I mean, when I when I'm when I'm listening to his sermon, I'm just I'm asking so many questions. Like number one, was this actually explicitly taught like this, or is this a reinterpretation? Did did Matt Chandler's high school teachers really want him to, to know that North Africa is different than the rest of Africa and whatever that means. And however that somehow kind of upholds like whiteness or racism or something. Um, you you know, there's other very reasonable ways of interpreting like, uh, childhood education maybe is the failure to learn about most great feats of engineering and architecture on every continent, really a fruit of racism. um, Uh, Is the failure for American children to learn about historical architecture and engineering in China a sign of racism against the Chinese? Um, Could it all simply be that American kids learn mostly about America, which is predominantly white, not nearly as much about Africa or Asia or India because we live in America? Could it be that children learn mostly about people with white skin because most people in America have white skin? It's not... It's not some deep-seated thing of racism. It's just learning primarily about America. Look, look at it this way. Would we consider it racist if Chinese kids in China didn't learn much about American engineering growing up or American history? Um, or would we just reasonably assume that it's because they live in China? Could it be all just for a lack of time? You know, a lack of time. In education, could it be a weakness? Maybe in education that has nothing to do with race and racism. The point of me asking all these questions is to show that um, th- this worldview reinterprets everything with one with one answer. There's only one reason, uh, it seems, in Matt Chandler's mind in those sermons. There's only one answer that he didn't learn very much about architecture and engineering in Africa, and it's because of racism. And what I'm saying is I can think of 10 other reasons that have nothing to do with race and racism off of the top of my head. So in other words, it seems examples like these of racism are not reasonable ways to interpret reality. They're just not. And I'm not saying that couldn't be the case. That could be the case. But again, there are 10 other reasons I can think off the top of my head that would seem far more reasonable uh, to interpret Uh, childhood education. So Pastor Matt Chandler's point is that white people are surprised. We're we're now surprised to learn that non-white people are intelligent and creative because we were never taught this. We were just ignorant of this. We were just taught that basically only white people are creative and intelligent and have great feats of engineering and architecture. But the problem is this is a massive assumption he makes in these sermons. And again, I'm using these sermons just as an example of something I see and I hear all the time in this movement. It's a massive assumption made about everyone else's experience. Um, For instance, were you taught in school in such a way to even imply that non-white people aren't intelligent or creative? Were you taught that Northern Africa isn't the same as Africa? Um, While learning those things about non-white people seems to have come as a surprise to Pastor Matt Chandler, it doesn't mean that other people are surprised by this. He expresses this surprise, this kind of, I was ignorant, and and there's this surprise that non-white people have just done amazing things throughout the history of the world, but that doesn't mean that other people are surprised by that idea. It, it, it It's just this massive assumption, this reinterpretation that's turned into this big assumption about Everyone else, particularly white people, and then it's turned into a massive accusation. Um, it, it is just, and it's the product of of this constantly reinterpreting everything. Um, all right. Third thing, uh, this worldview uh, uses faulty logic in order to substantiate the idea that it's everywhere. We've talked about this, so I'll cover this quickly. What is so strategic and tactical about this worldview and about social justice theory is that it only really needs someone to disagree with it to prove itself true. Uh, Ibram Kendi argues, quote, the claim of not racist neutrality. In other words, for someone to say, I'm not racist, I'm neutral in all of this. He says the claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism, end quote. So, the logic functions similar to the question, When did you stop beating your spouse? When did you stop beating yourself? The very spouse, the very question is loaded with an accusation of guilt. This worldview is true because someone else's subjective experience said it is. And the worldview is proven when anyone disagrees with it. You disagree with the worldview, and that's actually proof of your race. You say you're not racist. And that's actually a mask for the racism we assume is there. We reinterpret in such a way to show that it's there. Um, This worldview lives in the world of you've got your truth and I've got my truth. And the truth that trumps all truth is the one that says racism's everywhere. Um, The only truth that's really valid is the truth that agrees with the tenets of this worldview. Any disagreement. Uh, is really the falsehood of an oppressor uh, who ultimately should then be isolated, boycotted, taught more, resisted, that sort of thing. So this is why, this right here is why it's precisely so hard to converse about race and racism in culture today. Because if you do not buy into this worldview, you are proving yourself to be the very problem in the worldview in the in the crosshairs of the worldview and therefore what you have to say is really of little value if you disagree really at all in uh in the culture today on these things really what you have to say is is of just no value because you're actually the problem you just proved yourself to be the problem this is why the nation families churches marriages um relationships between parents and their kids are just being torn apart along the lines of this worldview uh, because it demands its its adherence draw dividing lines in the sand. It, it demands that. Okay, Again, there's really only two categories of people. Those oppressing and those who are oppressed. So if you're not the oppressed and you disagree with the whole concept of those two categories being the only two categories, you just proved yourself to be a part of the oppressive group. Now lastly, This movement, wokeness, social justice theory, promotes the very ideas it condemns in a haze of contradictions. For instance, on the one hand, race is a social construct, the movement says, and I agree with, that has principally been used to oppress. On the other hand, we must actively uphold racial categories. On the one hand, discrimination is used to oppress, but on the other hand, we must actively discriminate. On the one hand, we must not treat people differently based on skin color. On the un- other hand, we must assume a person's culture and history based on skin color. On the one hand, needing a ID to drive is not racist. On the other hand, needing an ID to vote is racist. Again, constantly, again and again and again, uh, this worldview um, it is so blurry in the contradictions That are constantly being asked uh, that you embrace. Um, At the same time that discrimination is shown to be core to the entire problem, discrimination is promoted to get us out of the problem. Again, I think it's worth quoting Lindsay and Pluckrose, Quote, as they are, the ideas are demonstrably bad and ethically incoherent and cannot withstand rigorous scrutiny without imploding and disappearing in a puff of contradictions. End quote. In the end, in the end, y'all, this worldview rarely wants to reason coherently, which is why you are probably still so utterly confused about these things. Um, The past necessarily implies something about the present. Events and discourses are constantly being reinterpreted. Um, reasoning on the subject immediately moves to label people e- as either good or bad proponents of racism or anti-racist, um, n- new words, um, new, new meanings. Um, again, I'm reading this, this book on critical race theory right now that talks about uh, basically how a part of the goal of critical race theory is to create a new glossary of terms and language Um, where that's why you thought you knew what racism meant, but you don't. You thought anti-racism meant one thing, but but it really doesn't. Um, In many ways, this worldview is Gnostic. Okay, what do I mean by Gnostic? Uh, There's this secret knowledge out there held by those who've woken up to see this omnipresent, uh, to see omnipresent invisible realities and to know the secrets of your subconscious. They know more about what you think in your brain than you do. They know more about what's going on in your heart than you do. They have this this gnostic secret knowledge that they've finally woken up to, and um, and they can see invisible realities. They've got they know the secrets of your subconscious, and they're trying to help you wake up to it. And the reason you don't understand these things, you just haven't woken up yet. You know, It's not with evidence. It's not with substantiation. It's not because you can't reason with your brain. There's just something wrong with you. This is why you're still confused about this whole conversation about race and racism in America. Um, and, the, and the result, ultimately, it's very tactical of this worldview, because the result is that in your confusion, you're led to just be quiet, uh, to keep learning, uh, and to fall in line in the meantime just to fall in line in the meantime. Um, I think that this is why discourse about these things is more and more frowned upon. You'll notice proponents of this worldview are more and more saying things like, I'm tired of talking to people who disagree with me about these things. I'm tired of, I I saw a tweet recently by a a leading voice in the church uh, in this movement. and, And he talked about how he's just tired of, you know, racists will just never agree. And so just why bother talking to them? And, uh, and he didn't, he didn't say this and, and, and it didn't necessarily even imply it. Um, but I did wonder, I wonder is, is what he's saying is that anyone who disagrees is a racist, you know? So why talk to anyone who disagrees because they're a racist? Again, he didn't say that, but that is, that seems to be what the idea is brewing into. Um, and so, so why, why even discuss? You know, again, the issue is not so much with evidence and reason and substantiation. The problem is with you and and the racism deeply embedded in your own heart. Um, here's the big problem: the lack of substantiation here leads to misdiagnosing the problem and therefore offering a bad solution. If we misdiagnose the problem. Whatever, whatever problem at hand we're trying to find, we're trying to figure out, we're trying to get to the root of, we will probably offer a bad solution and leave intact the original problem and maybe even offer a solution that creates whole new problems to, to solve. We must demand, you must demand far more substantiation for such radical claims about problems in American society to ensure we get to the right solution. Also, A big problem with this worldview is it's dangerous. It is dangerous in its hypocrisy. For instance, in order to correct the train wreckage of past discrimination that led to things like slavery, murder, rape, horrible atrocities, uh, we're called to embrace the same idea and activity of discrimination. Um, We all agree. I mean, most people agree. The world in which we live is littered with evil and injustice and sin and discrimination. Racism is still alive and well in our world and in American society. But this worldview then provides a solution that shares the ideology of the problem it seeks to solve. And in the end, it promises a kind of utopia that's established by the same kind of ideas that have caused previous ruin. For instance, making assumptions about, people's, about people based on skin color. On the one hand, that idea is condemned. On the, one, on the other hand, that idea is said to be embraced as a solution. So why do we think that promoting another form of discrimination, for instance, will somehow be immune to the ruin that past discrimination caused? Ultimately, this utopia promise by this worldview is not one of equality where all people are treated equally as image bearers of God. It's not what it's about. This worldview is calling for a utopia, of, a utopia of equity where all people end up in the same exact place. How do we get there? Through the practice of discrimination and the power of the state. The power of the state, the government, to enforce it and to bring it about. And what does history show about this kind of idea? When governments seek to create these kind of utopias, the results can be deadly on a hauntingly massive scale. So what should you do on the ground? Do what reasonable people do. Ask questions without fear. Without fear, when someone holds up a cup and says, this is a cup and it's a great cup and it should change everything about your life. Without fear, say, that's amazing. I, if that's true, I want that cup. I want 10 of those cups. Could you pour some water in that cup? Could you pour some water in that cup? In other words, ask questions. What do you mean by that? How do we do that? What exactly is racist in American culture? How do you know that to be true? What do you mean when you say? What do you mean by that? I'll end with this story I mentioned on our last podcast, um, how uh, a Christian brother uh, said something about repenting, I think, corporately for past sins. And someone asked him and said, hey, do you think, he basically restated his own proposition and said, do you think we can repent for sins of people in the past, in history. And his answer was essentially, I don't know. So he made a statement. He was then asked essentially the statement in question form, and it led to him going, I I don't really know. What do you mean by that? How do we do that? What exactly did you mean when you said, what exactly is racist in American culture? How do you know that to be true? ask questions, be curious so that we can actually get to the real problems and, and offer real Solutions. All right. On the next episode, we're going to tackle these things from a more biblical perspective. Not just considering the reasoning, the substantiation, things like that, but how as Christians should we think about these things? How should what should we embrace about it? Um, uh, what should we reject? Uh, all from a more biblical perspective. So until then, peace.